Would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. We come now to the, the next rebuke that Paul has for the Corinthian church and that the Holy Spirit also has for us. And we've seen the, the previous rebukes. We saw the ungodly divisions in the church. We've spent several weeks looking at that. And the last two weeks, we saw the, the toleration for sexual immorality. That was the rebuke that we saw in chapter 5. And we see that these rebukes have at their core worldliness in the church. The problem is the church refuses to be countercultural, but rather has become indistinguishable from the surrounding pagan culture. And we see the same cause as we look at this next rebuke in chapter 6, which is of lawsuits. So believers, between believers, there are lawsuits in the church. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to bro- to brother go- goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Let us pray. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us. Lord, as we look at this scripture, Father, I pray for your Spirit to be with me, that you will speak through me. Lord, we pray that you will help us to understand this and, and, and confront us. Confront us where we need confronting, where we are thinking like the world, where we are not thinking as those who have been changed, changed by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that that Spirit will be with us, that you will be seen and you will be glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is no doubt that we live in a highly litigious society. The United States has the the highest number of lawsuits, both per capita and as a total number, than any country in the world. We have by far the, the most number of lawyers in any country in the world. And many of these lawsuits, they, they deal with legitimate issues of, of justice, but many can be described no other way but frivolous. And I just want to give you a couple of the examples that I found from a website, ejuris.com, of examples of frivolous lawsuits. Overton versus Anheuser-Busch Company. 1993, Richard Overton sued Anheuser-Busch for false advertising after he drank a six-pack of Bud Light and the beer failed to produce visions of beautiful women on a beach, as the advertisement had seemed to suggest. And he sought $10,000 in damage, claiming that Bud Light's deceptive marketing caused him great emotional distress. How about this one? Pearson versus Chung. This was in the District of Columbia. In 2005, Roy Pearson took a pair of pants to a local dry cleaner for alterations, and the dry cleaner inadvertently sent the pants to the wrong location. And the pants were quickly recovered and and returned to Pearson, 
although he claims he, the, those pants that they returned didn't belong to him, even though there was uh, documentation proving otherwise. So Pearson sued the owners of the dry cleaner. Forget this, $67 million. Those must have been some pretty important pants uh, that he had. How about this one? Rosenberg versus Google Company. In, in, uh, this was in Utah. In 2009, Lauren Rosenberg sued Google for more than $100,000, and the basis of her lawsuit was that Google Maps ad, uh, advised her to walk along a freeway to get to her destination. And despite this being clearly wrong and, and clearly dangerous, she followed the directions precisely and was hit by a car. Now, all of these were, were thrown out, and we can laugh at these examples, but the question is, why are we as a society, why are we as a culture so prone to litigate, so prone to go to a lawyer and to sue. And I think in an aspect of our fallen nature that's really uh, elevated by our American culture is this idea of my rights. I have rights, and I need to defend my rights. I need to exert my rights. And if something goes wrong, someone has to be a blame. Someone else has to be at fault. And I need to go after that person. They have to pay because, again, I have my rights. So I will sue. And this... Uh, litigious impulse that we have in our culture, this was just as strong for the Corinthian culture. In fact, it was just as strong even in the Corinthian church. And this brings us to this rebuke that Paul has for the church. Verse 1, he says, When one of you has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And you can hear the incredulity in Paul's words. Paul cannot believe that the Corinthians are so foolish, doing something so obviously foolish. <clears throat> they have grievances against one another, against a fellow Christian. And instead of working it out among themselves, instead of even maybe getting a, a brother to help or, or even come to the church, they take the grievance outside. They take the unbelievers. They take their issue to the unrighteous instead of the church, instead of the saints. So why is this so foolish? Why is this so obviously foolish? Well, the answer lies in the verse itself. They take the issue to the unrighteous. So how could you expect justice from the unrighteous, someone who is fundamentally unjust, someone who is fundamentally wicked? It makes no sense. See, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for judges to be corrupt, to favor the wealthy, to favor the powerful, to expect a bribe and give justice to the person who gives them the biggest bribe. Or they may even just look at the person before them. Who could help me the most? Who could be the most advantageous to my, to my situation? Justice wasn't a concern. Their concern was pragmatism. How could they help me in my position? And even if this wasn't the case, even if there was an unbelieving judge who was looking out not for his own best interest, but actually wanted to execute justice, actually wanted to do what was right, at best, at best all he could do was give human justice. As an unbeliever, the judge did not know God. He did not know God's law. He was unable, because he was unregenerate, to render a godly decision from a heavenly perspective, from an eternal perspective. And in the world, and among those who do not know God, this is the best they can do. And this is enough to restrain evil. God, in his, in his uh, common grace, he has given us the civil magistrate to restrain evil. But this is not enough for the Christian. The Christian who desires God's glory, God is not glorified among lawsuits, among believers that are taken to the unrighteous law. 
And the reason that God is not glorified when a Christian takes another Christian to court before an unbeliever, in, in fact, God is not only not glorified, God is dishonored when we do this. And the reason we, God, is not honor, God is dishonored is we look no different. We look no different than the unbeliever. We act just like an unbeliever. We act just like the world. We're only interested in our rights. <clears throat> but as Christians, as those who are redeemed and regenerated by Christ's blood, we are called to be holy. And this means we are called to be different. We are to display a clear and distinct differences from the unbeliever. We are to look different. We are to act differently. We are to be salt and light in the world. And salt only works if salt is different than the world. If it loses its saltiness, which means it becomes indistinguishable from that which is around it, the salt is useless. And again, we are called to be light in a dark world. And light can only work if it illuminates, if it is different from the darkness. Who's ever heard of dark light? It doesn't exist. And when we fail to remain distinct from the unbelieving world, when we fail to look different, we are failing our calling. We are of absolutely no use to the unbelieving world. And we are unable to glorify God. So this is the first reason. This is the first reason why we are not to take our lawsuits. Basically, we are not to air our dirty laundry before unbelievers because it dishonors God. <clears throat> but Paul doesn't stop there. He gives other reasons why we are not to do this, why it's so utterly foolish. And he lists them in verses 2 through 4. So take a look at these verses. He says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than manners pertaining to this life? So if you have these such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, there's a lot in, the, in these verses, and, and, and a lot of times these verses will distract us from the main point. There's, there's a temptation to look at these verses and run down rabbit trails. I want, us, I want to try to keep you from following that temptation. I want us to look at what the main point is, is to understand Paul's main point and not get distracted by these tangent details. And Paul's main point is basically simple. He says the church is vastly more competent to settle these disputes than it is for the unbelievers, the secular world. So going outside to settle these disputes is not an option. It's not even a consideration for the Christian. And then Paul gives reasons for this conclusion in these verses. And these reasons, this is what must, may lead us to other questions. Questions really that are not answered in this passage, not answered in Scripture. And we need to be careful that we don't read too much into these examples and then run off into speculation, not supported by Scripture. So verse 2, Paul uses the example of the competency of the church to, to judge these issues by the fact that the church will judge the world. He says, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent in these trivial cases? Now, some people are quick to say, well, isn't Paul now contradicting himself? Right? Just in, in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Remember, we talked about this means judging non-Christians. See, our job is not to judge those outside the church. Our job is to focus on those inside the church. And this is the point of my sermon last week in, in uh, the second half of chapter 5. Verse 13 of chapter 5 says that God will judge those out. We are to judge those inside. So is this a contradiction? No, not at all. See, chapter 5 was a prohibition against pronouncing judgment on those outside the church now 
at this time. That this is not our job. We are to judge those inside the church through church discipline. But for those outside the church, we are to proclaim the gospel to them. We are to be a prophetic voice. We are to call them to repentance, not to judgment, to repentance. We are to proclaim the bad news. The bad news that every single one of us who's ever been born has been separated from a holy God. And we are under his just wrath and judgment at this very moment. But we are also to proclaim the good news. And the good news is the gospel. The gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be under that wrath, but have eternal life. That his son took this wrath for us. And we don't ever have to worry about it. But if we reject the Son, that wrath will fall on us. And we will be have to pay it all on our own. But chapter 6, verse 2, speaks not of current judgment, but of future judgment, of final judgment. And this judgment is not our own prerogative, but rather it happens in Christ. We judge in Christ as his church. We participate with Christ in his final judgment. Jesus says in, in Matthew 19, 28, <clears throat> he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, that is the church, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we will participate. The church will not judge on its own authority, but the authority that we have in Christ, with whom we are joined. <clears throat> but even more confusing than verse 2, I think, is verse 3 which says, do you not know that you are to judge angels? People look at that and say, judge angels? What could this mean? Who, how do we judge angels? Is, is this the, the fallen angels? Is this the elect angels? And if it's the elect angels, they've never rebelled. They've never sinned. They're innocent. How are they judged? And these are all questions that are not answered by this text. And to further complicate the matter, the, the meaning of the word judge itself is broad. It can mean judge like we use it, to judge between disputes and, and, and discernment. Or remember in the book of Judges, it meant to lead. They, they, were, they were leaders. They weren't judges in a legal sense. So what does the text mean? Well, my personal understanding, and I could be wrong, so I'm not going to say this dogmatically, but my understanding that the judging of the angels refers to the church in Christ having a leadership position, an authority over the angels in the new heavens and in the new earth. And I draw this from, from uh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It talks about Jesus. And it says, for, for a little while he was made lower than the angels. Uh, so during his incarnation, when Jesus took a human nature, he was lower than the angels because our nature is lower than that of the angels. But then in Hebrews uh, 1, 3, and 4, Again, speaking of Christ after the atonement, after the resurrection, after his glorification. It says, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus, now in his glorified state, he is superior to angels. Christ, who is, who is now united to our human nature, he has lifted our human nature, our glorified nation, our, our nature to be higher than those angels. So I take this to mean that we, when we are glorified, when we are united to Christ, we too will be superior to angels. And we will have that authority over the angels, not on our own, but in Christ. Again, this is, this is my own interpretation. I could be wrong. This is not dogma. Another possibility that Paul may be talking about would be completely different. He may be contrasting a physical judging and a spiritual judging. 
And by speaking of judging the world, he is talking about um, during the end times, the church will judge the physical, all that is physical, same way a secular judge may judge what's physical. But by adding the judgment of angels, Paul is now including another level. Not only will we judge the physical, we will judge the spiritual. Again, there's not enough information to know for sure. Either one of them, I think, would fit in this context. But what we do know, what we have enough information, is that Paul is saying that the church will have a great privilege in participating in end-time judgment in some way. And because of this, the church is more than qualified right now to judge these trivial cases between believers instead of taking them to the outside law, outside judges. So don't miss the, the main point because we can't be certain on certain of, of these details. And just in case there's any ambiguity, Paul reiterates his main point in verses 4 through 6. He says, so if you have any cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. See, publicly displaying these disputes that are between brothers to the unbelievers, this brings shame. It brings shame to the individuals that are involved. It brings dishonor on the entire church in the eyes of the unbelievers. And ultimately, it dishonors Christ. It makes us look bad. It makes the church look bad. And it makes Christ look bad. So this in and of itself should motivate them to abandon this foolish and sinful practice of, of taking their disputes with others, other believers, to the secular system. But this is not the main point of the text. We see the main point of the text in verse 7, where Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. See, the very fact that disputes in the church escalated to the level of lawsuits, this is a defeat. This is a problem. This is an indication that something is wrong in their Christian life. And why is this? Because when a Christian is taking another Christian to court, when, when a brother is suing his brother, it shows that they are worldly in their thinking. It shows that they have taken on this, it's all about my rights, it's all about me attitude. They're looking out for number one. This is the attitude of an unbeliever. This is not the attitude of a new creation in Christ. See, as Christians, we have a completely different, we have a revolutionary outlook on the world. Our thinking is polar opposite than that of the unbeliever. See, it, it, it's so different that it should look utterly foolish. A non-believer would have no idea, would, would, would just say, you guys make no sense whatsoever. And this new outlook is described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, a section of which we read this morning as our Gospel reading. Jesus said in Matthew 5:38, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. See, this is a principle of proportional justice. It's the punishment should fit the crime. Now, because of our sinful nature, our natural response is not justice. We want retribution. We want revenge. We want to ratchet it up. It's, it's kind of like Sean Connery's character in The Untouchables, if any of you have seen them. He says, they pull a knife on you, you pull a gun. They put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Well, that may be the Chicago way, but that's not the way of justice. Justice is proportional, an eye for an eye. This is the best. This is the most just that our natural person could be. But this is not the standard for a Christian. Justice 
is not what we are called to. Now, we're certainly not called to do anything less than justice now, but we are called to do much, much more than justice. Christ calls his people to an even higher standard. Continuing in Matthew 5, 39 through 42, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do you see how bizarre this teaching is? See, our attitude as Christians, even even as Christians, our attitude, and I've talked to many people, this is, this is what their attitude is. They say, you know, I, I won't start to fight. I won't throw the first punch, but I'll finish the fight. I'll throw the last punch. That's often our attitude that we have as Christians. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. This makes no sense. Jesus even speaks about lawsuits here. He says, if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, are you then to demand your rights and say, no, you can't have my tunic and fight with them and get a court and, and go to the judge? No. What does Jesus say? Let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, do you resist? Do you say, I have my rights? That's not fair. No. You voluntarily go with them. Not one mile, but two miles. As Christians, we go the extra mile. And if this is not crazy enough, Jesus goes on to say in verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what we're called to. And these words are so familiar to us that, the, that we fail to hear what they really say. We feel, fail to hear just how revolutionary these words truly are. And Jesus here is, is talking about our relationship with unbelievers. He's talking about our enemies. If this is how Christians are to, to treat our enemies, how much more should we then treat our brothers? If we are not to demand our rights from unbelievers, how are we to interact with fellow Christians? Well, Paul answers this question by the two rhetorical questions he raises at the end of verse 7. Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Is this something we even consider? See, we're so focused on demanding our rights. We're so concerned that, that someone else won't do us wrong, that someone else doesn't defraud us, that what we do is we actually strike first. We strike the first blow. We preemptively attack them so they can't hurt us. How many of you heard the golden rule? The golden rule is do unto others before they can do unto you. And this is exactly what the Corinthians did. This is exactly what we do. We see this in verse 8. He says, but you yourselves, again, the Christians, you wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do we think this way? Do we even consider why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now I can hear the objections that you're all thinking right now because they're in my mind as well. That won't work. That's not realistic. We'll be taken advantage of. We'll become a doormat. People will walk all over us if we do this. Well, first of all, we need to see what this is not saying. It's not saying that we are to be cowards. It's not saying that we are not to speak the truth. It's not saying that we are not to hold people accountable to biblical standards. It's not saying that we are to, to tolerate narcissistic bullies. The reaction that Jesus calls for is not the reaction of the weak. It's not the reaction of those who have no other options. 
It's not the reactions of those who are run away, running away from conflict and allowing the other person to abuse them. No. What Jesus calls for us to do, what Paul is calling for us to do, is to make a conscious decision not to exercise our rights. A conscious decision not to exercise our rights. The person going the one mile had no choice. They were forced to go one mile. But Jesus calls us to make a conscious choice to go the second mile. That decision is all up to us. We are in control. So when Paul says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? We are going into this with our eyes open. We are, not, we are not saying that I will not exert my rights. We're saying I will not exert my rights in this situation. We're saying I will voluntarily suffer wrong. I will voluntarily be defrauded. And it's not because I'm gullible. It's not because I'm helpless. It's not because I have no other choice. But it's a conscious decision out of obedience to Christ. And it's in the hope that this decision will bring about reconciliation. But even if it doesn't, we know that this will glorify God. And what we're doing when we respond this way, a way that defies all human logic and wisdom, a way that is obedient to the Lord, what we are doing is we are entrusting our welfare, not to our own efforts, which is the natural thing to do, which a natural man will do, but we are entrusting them to the Lord. And you know what happens when we do this? The Lord delivers. He comes through for us. In fact, his power is so much greater than anything that we can do. In our Old Testament reading, today. We see an example of this type of trust in Abram in his dispute with his nephew Lot. See, Abram was the superior in this relationship. He had the right to make the choice. He had the right to the best land. But what does he do? He forewent this right to choose the better land. And we're told in, in Genesis 13, 10 and 11, it said, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the God, of, of the Lord. See, this was, this was good land. This was, this was fertile land. He saw that. He said, yeah, I want that land. And it says, so Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Then they separated. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was a desert. See, from a human perspective, it looked like Abram really got a raw deal. He was taken advantage of. It looked like Lot took advantage of him. But God protected Abram. He provided for Abram. And also remember in the Jordan Valley. Who else was in the Jordan Valley? The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These were the ones that provided a temptation, really a corruption to Lot. So when we respond in obedience to the Lord, by not fighting for our rights, we are showing in as clear way as possible that we trust that the Lord will fight our battles for us. He will fight for those rights. So we never have to fear. We never have to fear that this response is unrealistic. But there's an even more exciting outcome when we respond in obedience, when we consciously and purposely choose to suffer wrong, and when we choose to be defrauded. So remember here in, in this passage, we are talking about disputes between believers, among brothers. The dis disagreement is between two people who are new creations in Christ, two people who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Now sadly, sadly the dispute has caused the believers to forget this new identity, and to respond just the way a non-believer would respond, an unbeliever would respond. But here's the real exciting thing. When one of the parties in the dispute responds, not like the unbeliever, but rather like a Christian, nine times out of ten, and I've seen this myself, and I've been on both sides of it, when one person takes the first step, the response will act like a jolt for the other person. It will reorient the other person in the dispute. It will make them remember that they are a Christian. 
And when they see their adversary respond in obedience to Christ, the Holy Spirit will use this to shift their perspective so they too will respond not like an unbeliever, but they too will respond like a believer. And then a beautiful thing happens. Then both sides, rather than fighting over their own rights, they will actually fall all over themselves to give the other person their rights. They will love the other person with brotherly affection. They will outdo one another in showing honor to the others. Romans 12.10. They will look not only to their own interest, but to the interest of the other. Philippians 2.4. And this reaction will completely befuddle unbelievers. And it will reconcile brothers and it will glorify God. And it will fill us with joy. So brothers and sisters, God's way is infinitely better than our way. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will give us that wisdom. You will give us that attitude. That we will not seek our own rights. We will put others above us. We will say, why not be wrong? Why not be defrauded? Better than defrauding someone else. And we will trust you. Just like Abram trusted you and you took care of him. When we trust you and when we are obedient to your word, you will take care of us and you will do amazing things and you will be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.